Dory, my wife, can't really have any form of dairy anymore. It just doesn't agree with her. So we usually have lactate milk in our house. And one particular morning, before I had my coffee, I'm staring at the back of a lactate carton, and I'm waxing philosophical. And I'm wondering, what makes milk, milk? If you're able to take milk from a cow's udder, and you're able to pasteurize it, and then you can take out any degree of fat in which you choose, from whole to 2% to 1% to skim, and then you can even take out the strand that's lactose, what else can you take out of the milk? Could you take out vitamins? Could you take out the calcium? Could you take out protein? Could you take out even its color? And let's take the question a step further. At which point do I take out which ingredient and it no longer is milk? Meaning, I can then, when that ingredient is removed from it, drink it with my hamburger and not violate any Torah law. <laughs> what makes milk, milk? I ask this question not because I've been staying up at night worrying about milk so much, but I've been thinking a lot about what makes us up. Humans, you and me. What makes us who we are? Not only the muscles and the sinew and the tissues and tendons, but what about our characteristics? What about our eye color and our hair color and our height and our skin pigmentation? But also, who are we and how are we? Which is the DNA that's in our flesh and blood and which is the DNA that's part of our personality and that we absorb by that which is around us? What makes us kind or curt, warm or cold, caring or careless? What makes us the people that we are and exactly how did we get that way? What's it that we're born to and what have we absorbed? And which part, if removed from us, would no longer make us who we are? the person that we identify as. The Babylonian Talmud in Masechet Nida says, There are three partners in the creation of a human being. One's mother, one's father, and God. The Talmud goes on to tell us that all of our physical characteristics, from our height to our weight to our eye color, pigmentation, all of those things, those come from the mother and the father. But the intangible parts, our senses, the ability to smell and taste, touch, hear, and the ability to love, that comes from God. And when the time comes for us to die, the part that was given from the mother and the part that was given from the father, those are interred into the ground, and the rest of the parts that were not tangible, they return to God. It even says in Mishnah Avot that it was against our will that we were all conceived and against our will that we were all born. There's not a one of us in this room that had any say in the matter as to whether we would come into the world and how we would come into the world and what factors would shape us in the world. Andrew Solomon wrote a very lengthy but brilliant book called Far From the Tree. He categorizes human identity on two slopes, a vertical slope and he categorizes it on a horizontal slope. Basically what he says is as follows. He says that our nationality, our skin color, our language, and most often our religion, these are vertical identities. These are things that we are born into, and we have very little control over what they are and how they affect us. And that's things that 
just happened to us. Think about your lives for a minute. It's probably true. But if you juxtapose that to a lot of our socioeconomic status, our individual disposition, and the way we learn, and a few other things about us as well, those are our, what Solomon calls, horizontal identities. Those are shaped a lot more by culture and society than our vertical identities are. So the verticals are the ones that we're born into, and the horizontals are the ones that we absorb as we grow and mature. Now these aren't hard and fast principles and rules, but just general ideas in the way in which this works. So what happens when you create a slope? What happens when a vertical and a horizontal identity intersect? What is that called? When a Jewish Ashkenazi child is born to survivors of the Holocaust from Krakow? What happens when that child is shaped by rationing of food or dealing with overprotective parents or trying to make sense of her mother who always hid her jewelry in the bread box because she was sure they were coming back? And to complicate matters, what happens when that Ashkenazic Jew, five foot four with blonde hair, marries a six foot two, dark skin, dark hair, Sephardic Jew, and intersects with his slope? One of the greatest philosophers, theologians, and psychiatrists of the modern era is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Viktor Frankl. He explains that we all have events in our lives some that are minuscule and some that are gargantuan. And what he, posits, what he posits is that we have very little control over 90% of the things that happen in our lives, but they continue to shape us. They structure us, and it's true. When you start thinking about it, he's absolutely right. Did any of you control the fact if your parents were Holocaust survivors? Do you control the fact if your mother died before your bat mitzvah? or if you're the middle child, or the taxi driver's kid, or the hand-me-down kid, or the rabbi's kid, or the surgeon's kid, or that entitled kid, or the adopted kid, the kid of divorced parents, the cancer survivor's kid. These things listed define every single one of us here. They shape our horizontal identities, and they even shape our vertical identities and they remind us that we are a lot more than just tissue and muscle and tendon. I would suggest that we all have a secondary blood type. Not A or B or O, but we have other factors that shape us and that make us who we are. I agree with Frankel. We are shaped by so many of these items and materials and things that happen in our life over which we have no control. But there's one thing we do have control over, and that's how we choose to accept, embrace, and interpret these events that happen to us. Allow me to illustrate this concept in a personal story. It was the late 70s, I was about four or five years old, and it was a Saturday night. And I went with my dad to go fill up the cars. Now you might remember in those days there was gas rationing, and our night was Saturday night to go fill up the car. Shabbat ended, we took one car, filled it up, went home, switched out to the other car, and filled it up. And I got to go with him. I sat in the front seat. In those days, a four or five-year-old could sit in the front seat. And we got to the gas station. And I jumped out of the car. And I started squeegeeing the windows, which was always my job, because my dad said I made them cleaner than any of my brothers did. <laughs> and I'm squeegeeing the windows. And I finish a little early. And I'm standing right next to this powder bu blue Buick Regal. And I just want to give you a little context about my dad. 
great man, incredibly talented, not a hyper emotive soul, and not of the worrisome nature, okay? Around the same time as this story, my brother, Larry, who's nine years older than I am, he fell off the monkey bars, and his collarbone was going through his skin. And my father said, it's a bruise, walk it off. <laughs> I just want you to have that story for a little bit of color about my father's worrisome nature. So we're back at the filling station. I'm standing next to the powder bu blue Buick Regal, and I'm watching as the gallon keeps turning, the number's going up, and it's changing the sum of the money and my dad has just about finished. I can hear the engine growl, it's topping off, and he takes the nozzle, and he's about to return it to its holster, and I'm standing right there, and the nozzle is still spewing out gas, and it just goes all over my eyes and my face. Now, I, I am okay, I'm fine, it did no damage, unless this is the damage. <laughs> but even, even in my momentarily impaired vision, I could still vividly see then what I still remember perfectly in my mind's memory today. And that was the look of panic and concern and love and fright that overcame my non-emotive, non-worrisome father. As he literally jumped on top of me and started to wipe me down with his cardigan sweater and screamed for help from any of the gas station attendants. Now I'm telling you, I, I was fine. It didn't hurt, it didn't affect my vision. A little bit of cold water and a lot of hugs wiped the tears away and I was back to normal. I just had to change my t-shirt when I got home. But seeing my father's reaction at that time shaped me in a way that I would never be able to articulate until after he died. From that moment and that reaction, I never once again, from the age of five, never questioned my father's love for me, not once. The older I get and the more people I talk to, I realize how very fortunate I am to have lived in a home where I never had to question my parents' love. Now some, some might have taken that moment and used it as an indictment for my father's carelessness. My mother, if she were there for sure, would have used it for that. But for some reason or another, that's not how I interpreted the event. We're all careless sometimes. It just made me aware at such a young, informative age that my father would never hurt me intentionally and would always do anything to take my pain away. And that seemingly inconsequential moment shaped my life forever. Now don't worry, I still have lots to talk about my parents in therapy. There are many other things that they got wrong. <laughs> but that moment, pumping gas, was a moment that allowed me to interpret how my parents always loved me. Viktor Frankl would say that moment would show us that which we control and that which we don't control. I had no control over whether that nozzle was going to spill out gas and get in my line of my eyes. And my father didn't intend for it to happen. But we could interpret, and we did control, how that event would be understood and absorbed in our hearts to understand the narrative we want to write. Maybe even subconsciously, that's the reason why we settled in New Jersey, where people would always pump our gas. <laughs> you know, ironically, Viktor Frankl, he was forced to test this theory in the world's most difficult laboratory. Frankl 
was a researcher as a psychiatrist, and he was doing his work in Austria. And he was working in the late 30s, and you all know what happened in the late 30s in Austria. He's finishing his great works in the time before Xerox and mimeographs. He's done 500 pages, 10 years worth of research, all written by hand and a little bit of typewriter. And he's about to deliver it to the university within a matter of weeks. And he hears that the Nazis are going to be coming soon, so he's going to finish the work. He goes to finish the work, and he realizes the day he's going to deliver his 500-page compendium of 10 years of research to the university is the day the Nazi has come to liquidate his town. He doesn't know what to do. He'll never be able to escape. He'll never be able to go and get it to the university. So he creatively opens up the lining of his coat, and he takes the stacks of paper, and he lines his entire coat with this 500 pages of research and sews it back up. The Nazis gather him, they count him, they put him on a train, and they send him off to Auschwitz, where he was one of the lucky ones. He was a worker. But the first thing they did when he arrived is they said to him and all the other people who were with him in the middle of winter, take off your coat and put it right here in the center pile. And Franco refused to do it. So the Nazi guard took the butt of his rifle and slapped him across the face with it and made a huge gash and started to bleed uncontrollably. He said, Jew, I told you to take off your coat. And Frankel refused. So now the SS guard turned the rifle around to the point where the barrel was pointing between his eyes. And he said, either take off the coat or I'm going to kill you now. And Frankel actually paused. He contemplated, is my worth that of life, all of this research in which I've done, to be gone? And he started to cry uncontrollably as he let the coat fall to the floor from his shoulders. They grabbed the coat and threw it into the pile, and he couldn't control his tears. The SS guards started to laugh at him, and they said, Jew, if a coat matters to you so much, we'll get you a coat. And they went to another pile where just moments before, men had taken off their coats, and now they were naked, marching to what they thought were going to be showers. And he put on a coat, and he wiped away his tears. Later that day, Frankel puts his hands in the pocket of the coat that belonged to a faceless and nameless Jew from a town in which we don't know, who now his memory was in the smoke that joined the clouds. And he felt a piece of paper in the pocket. And he pulled it out when he was alone, and in it was the Shema Yisrael prayer. Some Jew, when he heard the Nazis were coming, went to his seat door and ripped out the Shema Yisrael prayer and he brought it with him to his last journey. And Frankel says, how else could I interpret this coincidence in my life than as a challenge to live what I had written, to practice what I had preached, to realize I have no control in the destiny and so many things that happened to me, but I have ultimate control in interpreting how these events will shape my life and how there is unconditional meaning in our existence. Frankel, who wrote in his autobiography about how he had the privilege to learn as the protege of Freud, realized exactly what his research was all about. He had no say in whether or not he would end up in Auschwitz, and he had no say in so many other pieces of the faith of himself and his others. But how he would be determined in his faith by interpreting that single piece of paper in his coat was in his control. And that's what kept him alive. 
Franco was a psych psychoanalyst, and he would always look at situations and try to unpack them. And as a slave laborer, he would look at two categories of people in Auschwitz, those that were living and those that were dying in the slave labor camps. And he came down to this general rule. He said, those people that were able to uncover some meaning or some purpose in the work in which they were forced to do by the Nazis, as a rule, generally, they survived. And the others who succumbed to the meaninglessness of the work that the Nazis put them through, they usually died. It reminds us that how we address circumstances are what matter the most. My oldest brother Gabe, of blessed memory, he told a great story when he was ordained as a rabbi. It's a story about a random building in the middle of the town of Chicago. And if it rains in Chicago and a raindrop hits the northwest corner of this building, the drop will go down the street to a particular alleyway and into a sewage system. And from the sewage system, it will empty out into Lake Michigan and from there into the Atlantic Ocean. But if it goes into the southeast corner, that same raindrop or any other raindrop, it goes down the street into a different alley to a totally different sewage system and out to the Mississippi River that empties in the Gulf of Mexico. Just the slightest wind could change this raindrop and take it from one corner to the next and absolutely alter its destiny in life. So I ask you, which ocean are you in? And which effects did you have control over to find yourself there? And how can you interpret so many of the events in your life so that it has meaning for that which you can't control? The Chazan just beautifully chanted the words, On the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, it is decreed, and on Yom Kippur, it is inscribed. So what is this decree that we're talking about? We have this imagery, this idea of God as a king, as a ruler in charge of everything, who's standing with a scepter and deciding who will live and who will die and how we will. And we're taught, tshuva, tfilah, utstaka, mavirinet, roa But if we pray and we do repentance and we give tzedakah, we can mitigate the decree that we have a role in determining our fate. And that's how most Jews understand this prayer this time of year. But I don't. Because there's a part of me that finds it ridiculous. I don't see the decree as my individual fate. It's not a judgment. It's not some kind of punishment. Decree is simply the human condition. The blunt truth is, we don't control when we live and when we're born, just like the Mishnah tells us, and we really don't control, with very few exceptions, when we die. And this idea that it's within our control is almost silly. And if we can take this truth, as painful as it is to acknowledge at times, and realize that so much of our life we don't have control over, there are moments that can liberate us, and we can even embrace it. And then we have the ability to control how we understand it. We can't control much of what we're made of or who we are, because we're shaped by so many of these events. But how we react to them is what matters. To speak very candidly and in a very raw nature with all of you, after my brother committed suicide, my mom and dad became part of a painful network of parents that lost children. 
And my parents knew that this event would define them as much as parenthood itself did. And how they choose to respond to these circumstances was absolutely in their control. But there was nothing they could do to take away my brother's death. One parent chose to spend their remaining years mourning and in pain. And the other parent, and I won't tell you which one, but she, <laughs> she chose to be a resource for other parents whose children or loved ones committed suicide or suffered other forms of tragedy because that she could control. Now, is that the result of their vertical identity or their horizontal identity? Or is it just part of their DNA? Is the fact that my father lost his father when he was 17 and his mother when he was 35 and that he struggled in different arenas in his life, was that a source of so much of his anger and upset and that this was just the final blow for him where he was mad at God after devoting a life to God's worship? Or how about the fact that my mother is the daughter of affluent community leaders who lived with an open door to their home for meals and for clothing and for all types of communal support my grandmother, my bubby, my mom's mom, she was the captain of Hadassah and the poster child for Torah Fund. Now, did my mother's response come from her upbringing or was it her choice? Was it part of her vertical identity or her horizontal identity? We don't choose cancer and we don't choose our parents to be black or white. and We don't make our brother gay. But we do choose how we take those events that are part of our DNA and use them to make meaning in our lives. Look at Isaac from today's Parsha. Isaac has absolutely no say in the fact that he is conceived and born to elderly parents. He has no say in the fact that they are wildly overprotective of him. He has no say in the fact that his only playmate, his stepbrother Ishmael, is banished. He has no say in the fact that he is going to be almost sacrificed with his father, Abraham. But after his father dies, he does have say in the fact that he invites his half-brother Ishmael to come forward as they together buried their father. That he had control over. He had control over the ability to make amends. We read in the Haftarah yesterday, Hannah had no control over the fact that she couldn't bear children, but she did control the nature and tone and essence of the prayers that she offered to God as a result of the lot in which she had in life. In essence, that's tshuva. That is repentance. That's what today is all about. It's about taking stock of who we are and where we are and how we are and so much of which we have little control over, but also realizing how we choose to interpret those events and to respond to them. How we do that is what matters. And we decide that, no one else. We decide what matters. We choose how to interpret those events that shape us and offer meaning, even the events that we had no control over. So you might be asking yourself this morning, so, oh wise rabbi, how do I make meaning out of my life if it's so simple? How do I make meaning out of my son's autism? How do I make meaning out of being born a BRCA gene carrier? How do I make meaning out of my accident? Another easy question for your rabbi. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, I don't have a recipe for each and every one of you on how to make meaning in your life. What is meaningful to you might be meaningless to your neighbor. It is all individualized. But I do have a few clues for you on how I think you can find meaning in your life.
A few years ago, someone gave me a book and told me I needed to read it. It was called The Ritz-Carlton Way. It's a book on leadership and management styles, and it's a great book. There's a chapter in the book that talks about vacations. And there was a study that was done about middle-class America that saved for two to three years to take a family vacation to Disney. They saved up, it was a significant amount of money, they went for three or four days, and they did everything you could imagine. They had dinner with different characters. They went on all the rides you can imagine. They did Epcot and Disney and Universal and all the pieces, and the kids got stuffed animals and T-shirts. It was more than any child could ever dream of. And when you ask the children when they got home by professional surveyors, what was the best part of the trip? Eight out of 10 kids said, swimming in the pool. <laughs> so they asked the question, well, was the pool shaped like Mickey Mouse or was Winnie the Pooh there or Tigger? And they said, no. Just swimming in the pool of the hotel was the best part. The parents, of course, were furious. They spent all this money and all this energy trying to make this meaningful vacation and they could have saved all the time and energy for 50 bucks at the local Y. But there's a telling lesson there. Let me give you one other clue. Every year at some event in town, perhaps it happens in multiple occasions, there is a dinner at Rayo's that is auctioned off for some charity. And it goes for a small fortune. Now, I don't eat non-kosher food, so I can't tell you whether it's worth it or not. But I would imagine that no meatball is worth the price of what they are charging for this dinner at Rayo's. And to prove my point, I, I want to ask you a question. How many of you would bid on dinner at Rayo's if it were just dinner for one? And how many of you would bid on dinner at Rayo's if it was just dinner for two but no one else in the restaurant? I think the point of that is, is it's more than just the meatballs at Rayo's or the dinner there that people bid on. It's really about the company that you keep that makes it so meaningful. That is a choice that we make in identifying ourselves horizontally. And it's that that we have control over and that makes a difference. What I want all of you to do over the next 10 days as we begin to reflect and repent and look inward is to think about what matters to you. Think about your vertical identity what it is that you were born into and which you have no control over. And think about the choices you make and the surroundings that are near you that create and enhance your horizontal identity. And most importantly, think about how you're going to interpret those events that have defined you and defined your relationships. How are you celebrating those very small, those very seemingly inconsequential moments that blend together where you come from and who you are and add meaning to your life today. While different than at a gas pump for all of you, we all have an event like that, that shape us, that gave us a foundation and that we choose to interpret for how we will live life. I would humbly suggest to all of you and myself too, that the less sparkly moments in life the swimming pool and not the vacation, the special people around the table and not necessarily the menu or restaurant, the small act of rushing to someone's aid when they're hurting or responding to grief with love and empathy are the thing that helps shapes others' lives. And they probably give a lot of texture to our lives too, more than we even realize. 
Ladies and gentlemen, what makes milk milk is not the lactose or the vitamins or the proteins or the color. What makes milk milk is the blend of knowing that it came from a cow's udder and its purpose is nourishment. That is what makes milk milk. Whether it's strengthening our bones or healing heartburn or giving nutrients to babies or keeping our cereal afloat, milk is defined by where it comes from and what we use it for. Milk is vertical and milk is horizontal, just like you and me. We are all shaped by factors that we can't control. Whether we're the tall one or the skinny one, the orphan or the jock, but how we decode those factors that we can't control and those seemingly inconsequential events that happen on a random Saturday night is what makes us the personalities that we are today and most importantly, the difference makers we can be tomorrow. God, on this day of judgment, teach us to accept your decree and to accept the many things over which we have no control Teach us to accept the events we cannot fashion and to embrace the inheritances of which we had no say. But God, teach us to interpret these events, the ones that are born to us and passed down, so that we can strengthen those around us and we can strengthen ourselves. Give us the ability to find sacred in that which seems profane. And let us take stock of the circumstances in our lives and give us the tools to interpret them, to make ourselves better people to make this world that we share a holier place. Kenya may that be God's will. Amen and Shana Tovah.